Um, this is going to be a difficult class for me, and in some ways a heavy class. Um, I, I, um, I, I trust you'll see why um, halfway through if any of you... Um, <laughs> Debbie, Debbie boy, will you carry on your correspondence at another time? We're having a class right now. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't seen Sue in months. Oh, I, I don't care. God. Can you, so, so everybody's going to start carrying on. Sue, it was supposed to be private to Sue to say I'm so happy to see her face. Here. And she's well. <laughs> Hi, Sue. Would you stop, please? God. Bye. Would you call your husband so I can get some help here? Um, He's virtually no help. Yeah. Um, it's going to be an interesting class to me because it's it's going to deal, I think, more directly with the darkness of our modern world than I was aware of. We did Faulkner together, I, and um, Karen, I've had you on your mind because you said Hemingway was Faulkner without, or with the punctuation, and I've been reading him, and, and um, this is the first time I've read Old Man on the Sea in forever, and 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 I, again, I'm seeing things that I didn't see 20 years ago, and um, it's left me with a heavy, heavy heart, um, but we'll see. We'll see what you guys do with it when we're done. Anyway, it's, it, there's a lot to do tonight, so I want to get started. Um, tonight what I'd like to do is briefly review um, what, what we did when we finished up um, Dostoevsky, just a little bit of time, and then get to, um, and get to Hemingway and the Old Man of the Sea. When we start, I'm going to spend some time going over the three stories that we've already done together. They're very, very dark, very, very dark, and they're masterpieces. I, I think they're among the most perfect work of works of art that Hemingway did in his life. So um, I'm I'm so impressed with them, but they're um, they're really dark. Um, and I'm I'm assuming if things go well as planned, and you know they don't always go as planned with me, that we'll 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 cover the first half of Old Man of the Sea tonight, and cover the last part next week. And the following week, we'll start Billy Budd. And I went online to look at um, different editions. There are some cheap editions of Billy Budd. I don't, I don't have the one. I don't know what happened to my copy. Um, I'm going to have to buy a new one. But we'll, we'll do Billy Budd in a couple of weeks. And then I want to talk with you about a, a couple of things. Um, before we say our prayers, I, I've got a... Um, 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 you know that I'm I'm putting texts on hard copy texts on the blog. So if you if you Google literaturesprophecy.com, you'll get to our website. And you know at the bottom of the content page are two options for Francis and Seton, and hard copies hard copies of handouts and outlines and study guides and things like that are there. Um, some of the stuff is copyrighted, and and I'm gonna be we're gonna be doing a Virgil's Aeneid at Seton starting tomorrow night, and I'm going to make available the uh, the study guide, and it's copyrighted. It's a it's a it's a pretty hefty piece of work. Those of you who've done the Commedia, Dante and Homer, and some other major works know that they're they're pretty extensive, 
and we've always asked people for donations and I don't know how to do that. Mike said that um, if if people are willing you can sign up for PayPal or write a check. I'm not sure how you want to do this but I'd like to hear from you. Not on, not online. I mean not here on, on our program. Would all of you write me please or Suzanne and let us know um, if you're if you're willing to make contributions and if you are um, if you would what would be the preferable way to do this whether we should give you our address and send a check or just PayPal or something but there's a lot of hefty material um, that's going online right now and I've talked with Mike about um, using a password to keep the general public out I'm I'm not sure that I should do that but since there's a good amount of material going online I'm it, it may be the wiser thing to do. We, we just have to make a decision here. It's all new to me. Um, that's it. There's a couple of um, hard copy texts that I think are really important for what we're doing. One of them is called um, Naturalism that I put in the box tonight. So if you haven't looked at it, you should. I think it's going to shock you. Um, but it's the vein in which Hemingway is writing and during the week I'll send a scheme. I'm going to put a scheme of Old Man of the Sea because you know how much I love visual things. It'll, anyway, it'll be a brief scheme of the, of the story. I'm assuming most of you have read it because it's so short, but the scheme will help. And I'm also going to um, put online a piece on narrative point of view um, because, it's, um, because it, 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 it will help. Sorry. God. By the way, I saw Linda. It's just good to know that you're here. I, I know you've struggled before, and I guess Don just joined us. So, Don, it's it's good to know that you're present too. Um, I feel like we're sort of slowly coming back together again, and that's just a great pleasure for me and Suzanne both. So, anyway, that's the new stuff. Okay, so let us know, please, all of you what your thoughts are about donations or offering or helping out or um, and if you go online you can get these hard copies that I'm sending you can copy them um, I, th I think they're generally helpful let's start um, this morning the reading to me was so appropriate for what we're doing and what I'd like to do for the prayer is do the reading from the Old Testament. Um, so, um, this is the reading from Mass this morning, and take it as a prayer. Um, it's a dark warning um, on God's part to us. Um, we're heading into ordinary time, and the readings for a while have become a little bit darker. Severe warnings from God, and... In some ways, they, they're so appropriate, I think, for the readings. I, one of the things that I want to get to a little bit later is the prophetic character of, of literature. You know I've been pressing that on you for years. I think it's particularly appropriate for Hemingway, but I, w I want to wait till we get to him. But here's prophecy. This is the reading from this morning, so let it be our prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, you speak to us. Sorry. Um, you speak to us often um, words of encouragement and words of warning um, 
what a great gift. Um, we so often go about our lives as if we've got everything under control and life is the way we want it and and then suddenly something happens and it makes us wonder how well we're doing with what we've been asked to do. So um, I'm particularly grateful for your prayers this morning. Let me read them here. This is from Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. By a sudden blow, I am taking away from you the delight of your eyes, but do not mourn or weep or shed any tears. Groan in silence. Make no lament for the dead. Bind on your turban. Put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your beard and do not eat the customary bread. That evening, my wife died. And the next morning, I did as I had been commanded. Then the people asked me, Will you tell us what all these things that you're doing mean for us? I therefore spoke to the Lord, or the people that morning, saying to them, Thus the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I will now desecrate my sanctuary. These are the people he loves. These are the people he loves. Um... I will now desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold of your pride, the delight of your eyes, the desire of your soul. The sons and daughters you left behind shall fall by the sword. Ezekiel shall be a sign for you. All that you did you shall do when it happens. Thus you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall do as I have done, not covering your beards nor eating the customary bread, carrying on our lives the way we want, your turban shall remain on your heads, your sandals on your feet. We have to give up our life, be ready to move. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall um, rot away because of your sins and the groan and groan one to another. The word of the Lord. The refrain in the responsorial psalm is, You have forgotten God who gave you birth. Um, help us to take these warnings seriously, Lord. Um, in the gospel reading, you told a man who came to you and was missing something in his life. That's why I came to you. And asked what more could he do, and you said to him, give up all your possessions and follow you. We live in an affluent world given to wanting things, possessions. Help all of us to live as if we have nothing, ready to leave it alone, put it away. Um, the plague has sent a warning to us. I think it's a good thing in some ways. Help us to not get comfortable with our possessions, not take them for granted. Be ready to leave them up, turn away, um, to not let them get in the way of loving you. Let this be our prayer tonight. And let all the readings we do, <coughs> sorry, help give us strength um, in all of our efforts to, to do your will. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. If all of you got that outline that I sent you, you know that the first topic that I was going to speak to is literature's prophecy. I'm going to wait until we get to Hemingway because um, there's a prophetic element to what he's saying that I want I want to try to do some justice to when we get there. So I'm going to wait on. 
The differences between men and women in Dostoevsky, one of the questions that we that I asked you last week, I didn't think we'd, I mean, we, we'd handle them at the end of the class and so we were rushed, but I want to go back to them because I'd, I'd, um, I had, I don't think we did a good job in dealing with what's there. Um, um, Marcy had said that um, about those relationships that the men use women and I, I think something a lot, something more complicated than that is going on. Um, to get to it, I want to go back for a minute to make something clear for us because we've got a, we've got a tradition behind us now that should protect us from midi some, lots of modern ideologies, particularly feminism. Um, you know from the Bible that um, man and woman fell. Not men, both. Both sexes fell. We turned away from God and when we turned our, our love away from Him, we turned that love towards ourselves. And after that time, recorded history shows that men tend to use women and women tend to use men. That's a fact of the fall. That's just a fact. And if we don't see that, I, I think we're in trouble. The fall is with us. Um, there are lots of people today that, that put all the emphasis on men using women, and I, I think that's a blind. That In some ways that's a dangerous thing because I think there's a lot being left out. If you go back to the Odyssey, remember, I'm doing this with the um, Saint, the Seton group, remember this because this is crucial. When we did the Odyssey, what we learned, this is Homer, 800 years before Christ. When we did the Odyssey, you remember that the two paradigmatic cities, the prototypes of all the cities that Odysseus visited, every single one of them, the two prototypes for every city were the Phaeacians, the Scarian. Remember the Scarian whose ships crossed the sea without worry? They're, they're, a, they're a, a foreshadowing of suburbia. Comfortable, secure, wealthy. Um, everything is good, everything's safe. They don't know a bow, they don't know war, they don't know suffering. It's man's attempt to escape the city. Brutality. The Phaeacians and the, and the um, Cyclops live side by side. That's Homer's origins, side by side. The Phaeacians became so disturbed at the, at the Cyclops because they attacked them all the time that they moved. But those two cities are the prototype for everything that happens. And, and I, I, I think I've spoken to you about this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about doing Chesterton's Everlasting Man. I think it's one of the greatest books in the modern world. It, it, it's the book that led C.S. Lewis to his conversion. And in that book, um, Chesterton takes on all the modern theories about evolution and um, progress in, in, in an extraordinary way. And he just dismantles all of them. I mean, he shows how absurd they are. His argument is that both of those cities, the primitive and the, the developed, grew up simultaneously. He's not appealing to the Bible, but it's interesting that his argument, which is more faithful to facts than modern theories, corresponds to a biblical account. After the fall, Enoch created the first city, and those two cities grew up simultaneously side by side. We're in a fall. One city good, one city bad, a mix of both. Sorry, Doc. I didn't know there was another city. So, um, so the biblical account, interestingly, corresponds to facts. And Homer's account, eight, 800 B.C., and you know that he's writing 400 years after the Trojan War, follows that. 
what we learn from Homer, particularly in the Odyssey, is that, um, I mean, we learn from the Iliad how given men are to using women. You can't miss that in the Iliad. What we learn in the Odyssey are all the many ways in which women use men. You can't read the Odyssey and come out of it not seeing that. Women can be vicious. They can be subtle. They can be possessive. Um, women use men. And one of the fundamental things we learn from the Odyssey, remember, in the land of the dead, when Odysseus visited the land of the dead, none of the wives, none of them, remember their husbands. What they remember are their accomplishments and their possessions. All of which corresponds to Circe and um, Calypso and the Lestrigonese queen. They care more about their possessions and their accomplishments than they do about men. Athene is the one who says to Telemachus when he's about to go home. She said, be careful of women. This is a woman. This is Athena, the goddess of wisdom. She said, be careful of wisdom, I mean women, because they're too likely to use men for themselves. Now hold that ancient classical view of the sexes and, and set next to it the biblical. Eve, the temptress. Mary, who radically changes everything by her obedience to God. It's the Marian tradition that gives a completely, no, adds a dimension to the biblical account. Um, the image of wisdom in the ancient world is feminine. Athena is the goddess of wisdom. She's the only goddess, god of all the pantheon, who has two powers. She's a fighter and she's wise, but she, she never disobeys her husband, I mean her father. What, what makes her stand out is she obeys the father carrying out things. So we've got an image of wisdom, but it's feminine. And the, and the tradition of wisdom carrying through in the, in the philosophic tradition is the same. Lady, um, Lady philosophy comes to Boethius. It's not an accident that she's feminine. The tradition through the Middle Ages is that women was, or wisdom was feminine because, and vulnerable precisely because human beings, men and women, are too given to power. Men want power over women. Women want power over men. That's one of the effects of the fall. Wisdom is vulnerable to that power. It's rare. It gets tattered. It gets torn up. It's far more vulnerable. So the tradition going into the modern world was the sexes that we've been, we've been dealing with this since we began. There is this great tension, this underlying conflict between man and woman. It's one of the results of the fall. Um, but they both use each other. History has shown us that fact. Chaucer's, if, you, if we go back just a minute, um, we've already gone through this. I mean, it was a wonderful enjoyment for me. If you read Chaucer, you know that most of the men are scoundrels. The really good figures are women, and the reason they're so good is because they're much more given to prayer, they're much more given to obedience, they're much more given to loving. Um, the men do not. Um, in all of Shakespeare's plays, except for one, all the comedies, the central figures are women. They're teachers. Their voices figures of wisdom. They help teach. They make the men better. You know that from Merchant of Venice. Remember, Portia and um, Portia and I can't remember. Nerissa? Nerissa, when they come back to Belmont, scold their husbands. I mean, they, 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 they rake them under the coals because the men did not do what they should have done. I mean, once again, it's the women who are teachers. They're not given to power. 
when women slip into a world of power, in lots of ways they become worse than men. Now hold on to that. When we come to Dostoevsky, what we find is a really curious thing for me. Um, Katrina, Katrina um, is susceptible to Dmitri, but he's susceptible to her as well. He wanted to use her sexually because he had her at a disadvantage, but that all fell apart. And from that point on, Katrina shows some quality in her that's consistent in so much of what she does. She's very spiteful. Dmitri doesn't use him. One of the differences between them is Dmitri is reflective about his badness. He reflects on it. She doesn't. Grushenka does nothing but use women. I mean, use men. The moneylender, Dmitri, all the men that she talks about. She wants to pick up with that man that she thought she once loved in the spirit of self-interest. So it's not just men using women. As a matter of fact, if anything, it's the opposite. Um, it's that women are um, far more given to using men, except for old Karamazov. And old Karamazov is killed off, but that's his way to use women. He went through a couple, a couple of wives. Um, the amazing thing about Alyosha, and it's a really interesting comment of the book, is he's, his mother is the only mother who was genuinely pious. And the supposition is it's what helped him become the man he is. So Dostoevsky shows, a, a, it gives us a very dark picture of men and women. Um, one of the interesting things that I wanted to leave everybody with is that, is that if you compare Dostoevsky's work with, say, the West, Shakespeare or Chaucer, there's no positive image of virtue in nobody, not the men, and especially not the women. And, and one of the points that I wanted to emphasize as we move through that is this, that Russia came into the modern world with, without a philosophic tradition, without any understanding of virtue. They don't have it. They don't even know it. It's a world in which people live in their passions, men and women. You can't, you, you know that from your reading. You can't read 20 pages and just days without feeling the people are just absolutely governed by their passions. That's not so in the West. In the Western tradition, up till the Reformation, virtue was what all of us were called to in the natural world. There was a perfection possible in the natural order. It wasn't supernatural faith, hope, charity, in the natural order. We have lost that since the Reformation. Man's fall is complete, except in the Catholic Church. So it's interesting to hold, to, to come out of Dostoevsky when Russia's on the verge of communism and, and see in what ways it's prophetic of something happening in the West. And that makes clear something the West has been losing with the changes in the scientific worldview and the Reformation. So, Anyway, I wanted to just stress that um, because um, I, I think Dostoevsky's work is an extraordinary work, but I also am aware when I read it that, at least for me, I can't read it without being aware more emphatically of, of um, what we've lost in the West in the modern world. And the reason I'm, I want to read, I want to emphasize that just as a way of going back and doing a review. But but I especially want to give it emphasis because I think what's what we're going to discover tonight will confirm that view. What Hemingway is going to show us is one of the results of the changes that took place in the 16th, 17th century. Um, 
we we got a hint of it in Hawthorne and Melville. We're going to get it full blown in Hemingway. So um, we've entered. Um, Dostoevsky is is on is on the verge of a modern world. It's it's the same world that um, Hawthorne and Dostoevsky or uh, Melville were posed poised on, but it's gotten darker. So. Quick review. If, if anybody wants to make any quick comments, go ahead. Um, when we, I do. When, when we when we do, I want to I want to <coughs> start with Hemingway and look at this more directly. I don't know if y'all can hear. Me. So I don't know who's who. Go ahead. Who's ever talking? Somebody Let's had a see. comment. Yes, sir. Um, this is Jolie. Oh, Jolie. Uh, I didn't know. Hi. I didn't. Sorry. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um. It reminded me of, have you ever heard that Bob Seger song, Night Moves, when he sang, I used her, she used me, but neither one cared. We were getting our share. No, but it's so and, appropriate. I don't, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. I don't know the song, but it, I, it so fits with what I'm saying right now, yeah. And he's such a good poet that I, I almost thought, well, you know, myself being a musician, that those that's the literature I know yeah. and it, it um, when I was a junior in high school we had to do a project where we took a piece of literature and we paired it with a song with the same theme and I think that's the one of the pairings I would yeah you know, I would make I'm glad you um, did that I, I'm not aware but um, you know that I live in a cave so you should you should be surprised but that's so that's appropriate right. so appropriate yeah well and I I wanted to share with y'all too. Um, my husband's daughter just had a baby today, and uh, so we have a new member of the family. And um, that so the song fits because um, the, the uh, I think the conception of the baby kind of fit in with that song and with that theme because um, you know the you know birth dad didn't want anything to do with either of them. And then all of a sudden, this week, he decides he wants to wow. play ball. So, wow. So we wow. really could use y'all's prayers in terms of... Say say the baby's name and the mother and father, because we want to include them in our... Say their names, Julie. Yeah. Um, the mother and father are Jacqueline and Mitchell, and the baby's name is Maya. I can send you a pic if you want. Um, and we just... You know, it's there's just a lot of complicating factors that make it extremely difficult where we're going to have to support a lot. So Jacqueline and, and the father's name is? Mitchell. Mitchell. And the baby is Maya. That's right. Yeah. You've got it. Thank you. You've got it. Um, well, there gonna you be... go. For, I used her, she used me, but neither one cared. We were getting our share. And that's what happens, boys and girls. Well, you know, it's it's. I'm so grateful for your honesty. That's what, I mean, one of the one of the things I'm going to come back to when we do Hemingway when we get started is that one of the wonderful things that Hemingway does is lay bare what's underneath the American character. And it's a dark, dark, I mean, we saw it in Melville. We saw it in, especially in Melville with the sharks and the, you know, out of the, was the underworld that underlies the, the shore. It's a dark, dark world, and most Americans don't want to, just don't want to see it. But the artists um, have just rare courage to, to show us those things, like the Israel prophets, you know, the, the things that we don't want to see. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that. I'm really glad. You're good. You're good. 
Sometimes. And that's what I couldn't tell you when you saw me at the gym. <laughs> um, did you hear me? You're good sometimes. <laughs> I stop. I have to stop. How do you know? <laughs> oh, I made it to sometimes. Let's, let's start. Let's start. Um, I'm going to give um, a short paragraph description of Hemingway's life, and then I want to recast it in a reflection, which to me is far more important. So Hemingway was born in a Midwestern town just before the turn of the century in Illinois, um, and was raised in a congregational fundamentalist um, family. He didn't like his mother. Something was going on with her. His father committed suicide. There will be five suicides in his family. His brother committed suicide. His sister committed suicide. And their granddaughter, uh, Margot Hemingway, who was a model and an actress a short time ago, um, in our time, committed suicide. So there's a dark past running through that family and it's it, it's heavy it's been weighing on me a lot um, when Hemingway's a young boy after high school he um, he went to work as a reporter for a newspaper and then left for the first world war and became an ambulance driver he couldn't make it in our service because of a eye deficiency but he ended up as an ambulance driver there he was wounded um, and I'm going to I'm going to read something about um, this is what one of his um, biographers says about him. Um, he grew up in a congregational ch um, church. The church's theology was liberal for a time. Um, the Oak Park Church is described as preaching a blend of liberal theology, sentimental piety, and Victorian morality. Hold on to that for a moment, because we've been talking about that and in, in the importance in America, particularly with Hawthorne and Melville, because you know that both Hawthorne and Melville are looking very directly at that Protestant sense of dignity and respectability and the hypocrisies of it. Um, <clears throat> sentimental piety, Victorian morality, there was a strict emphasis on self-control, but a belief in an easy redemption, what Father James would always call cheap grace. Um, in his redemption and the perfectibility of human life. So he carried that in his upbringing. Um, he went off to Italy and was in the war, and he was surrounded by nothing but atrocities, killing right, left, nations against nations, a large-scale war. He came back and later, um, after he recovered from his wounds, he goes to Paris where, all, where so many of the artists at the early part of the century went. Um, Gertrude Stein was a leader in that group. James Joyce, Eliot was on the fringes of it. Um, 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 Frost was there for a while, Ezra Pound, Sherwood Anderson. I mean, I could go on and on. It was just an extraordinary gathering of artists and literary figures, painters, musicians. Gertrude Stein called the group the Lost Generation because they, they all happened to come there exactly at that time. If you, if you take a look, if you go online and look at that piece I gave you called Naturalism. All of them gathered at a time when the Christian faith was in collapse, virtually. I mean, remember, one of the major themes of Hawthorne and Melville was this conflict between a scientific way of reading the world and a biblical waiting world, right? And those two readings produce very different interpretations. But here's, here's um, 
naturalism at the turn of the century in America meant writing, for those literary people, it meant writing in accord with what they believed were um, clearly demonstrated scientific principles. And all of them were forms of determinism. Man had no free will. Man was a product of forces. The, the major figure in that group was Darwin. That, that um, There's this thing called evolution going on and man happens to fit into it. It's one of the reasons I'm asking all of you to read Chesterton's Everlasting Man because it's the best thing I've ever... It, it, it's just an extraordinary book. But Darwin's science at that time was accepted as biblical truth. But here are the determinisms. So th think about the effect of this on anybody growing up early part of the 20th century. From Newton it gains a sense of mechanistic determinism. The world is like a clock wound up. The metaphor is a mechanism. God's created it, left it to wind itself down. Darwin, biological determinism, the law of the jungle, Marx, um, history is a battleground of forces, economic forces. You can't escape from them. By the way, take a look at, at the liberal left today, and if you're understanding what's going on, all you'll know that the great driving force for the left is a sense of um, of a, of a um, socialist world that that we that will help bring us to a better condition by answering the oppressive class. I mean, the tendency is to look at America in terms of the oppressors and the oppressive. And the only way we can get out of it is by to defeat that class. That's strict Marx. Um, Freud gains a view of determinism in the inner psychic. From Taine, literature is a product of deterministic forces. Compt, social and environmental determinism. It goes on and on and on. There's not a scientist who grew up who didn't base his theory on this fact. Remember, science has as its aim to show what cannot be other than it is. It's predictable. It's repeatable. Right? So all these are, are materialist forms of determinism. Man's a product of all of these forces. He doesn't have free will. Um, he's subject. So the, the way in which man is presented at this time is that he's helpless to do anything He's in this world, he has this kind of dignity that the rest of creation doesn't have, but he's helpless in the face of it. All he can do is do the best that he can not to be destroyed by it, in a sense. So, so, um, so Hemingway goes to Paris, and all these people are gathered, and um, Stein calls it the lost generation. Um, Hemingway goes on to marry a young woman. The two of them are married for, I think, about five or six years. He has an affair with a woman. Um, his wife became aware of it and asked him to stop. He didn't, or she didn't even ask him to stop, if I recall. And um, they divorced, she divorced, and he went on to marry the other woman almost immediately afterwards. And then he had two marriages afterwards. Um, when he married the second woman, the second woman was Catholic, and he con um, converted to Catholicism just before the marriage. And if you read the biographies, it's interesting to watch because there will be lots of people who, are, who will argue that Hemingway was very Catholic. And there will be other Catholics who say, couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, I mean, they're both trying to defend Catholicism and finding faults. Um, 
I, it's hard for me to find. I, I, my own personal reading of, of Hemingway is that he, he carried the effects of religion with him all his life um, deeply. But I'm, I don't think they ever carried the weight to answer all the other things that formed him in his life. Um, um, he got he lived in Cuba for a while. He got involved with Castro, the C or the F, CIA. Um, was worried because of the things, some of the things that had gone on between him and Castro at a time when they were aware of what Castro was doing with the pink things and the revolution and nationalizing property and things like that. And I think he was f um, followed, um, what's the word, scrutinized, um, surveyed, surveyed, there was surveillances done on him. Um, and Hemingway, over the course of his life, became more and more paranoid, more and more frightened. The older he got, the more disillusioned he got with the world. And um, I think at some point late in his life, he became very, very depressed. And he looked back to his... Um, the early part of his life in his first marriage with real fondness and felt that he'd lost something. Um, he became ill, depressed, he, he was in a couple of plane accidents, he injured himself. Late in his life he, he went to see doctors who prescribed electromagnetic shock treatment. He had a number of shock treatments and they ruined him. I mean they just destroyed him. He came out of the shock treatments well, you can imagine, I mean, how, I mean, it just it upsets me to even talk about it. Went on for a time, and his last wife, who was the wife that survived him, um, was worried um, because of what she was seeing, and the doctor encouraged him to go back and have more treatments, and he went back. Shortly after those last treatments, and he'd been working on um, Old Man in the Sea, and, and he had recovered some early manuscripts that his first wife had lost in, uh, I think, in Cuba, and recovered them and began to be very productive after maybe 15 years of not very productive life at all. Um, but shortly after that, I think shortly after that, sec that second set of um, shock treatments, he took his life. Um, so it was a dark, dark life. Um, I think one of the things I'd like to leave you with, just you know, there's a, without going into the details of his life, picture this young man growing up in America, um, um, formed by congregational ideas. It's, it's a Midwestern town. It's, it's Protestant conservative, um, believing in the perfectibility of man and um, piety and goes off to war and he sees the devastation and the evil and the carnage and um, begins to see that there's something wrong in America and begins to write about it. Um, um, he, he stepped away from America the way so many did, Elliot did, um, a number of Americans did, because they were seeing in America what they called the modern dust bowl. It was it was a it was a it was a regime just given to commercial success, but it was covering up spiritually was awful. So he he did all these writings and immediately became um, famous. And he was looked at as the sort of epitome of the American writer. Um, Faulkner was his contemporary. Faulkner was very successful in the beginning, or um, not known, and then came into success and established himself as the writer. And uh, Hemingway and Faulkner were the, the two great writers of the century. Um, 
Um, then he goes through all these marriages, um, converts. Um, the conversion, in some sense, didn't mean anything. I think they baptized their first child, Episcopalian. Um, so it's a, it's a, to me, it's, it's hard to look at him, however successful he was on the outside, um, as a man um, just torn apart inwardly, could, could, never, could never find his place in the world. So the, the couple of things to just think about is that Midwestern upbringing, the loss of a religious faith, his attempt to recover it, but to do it at a time when the modern world is, is being shaped by all these various forms of determinism that come in with the sciences. So if you, take, if you go back to Melville and Hawthorne and watch these two men struggling with that conflict and move it forward in time to Hemingway, we're going from the beginnings of that conflict mid-19th century with Hawthorne and Melville to the beginnings of our world as we know it because Hemingway is really a spokesman. I mean, the, the world that he's showing us is so much more our own than the world that Hawthorne and uh, Melville did. So, um, Let me stop. Any questions? I want to just try to quickly go over the, the three short stories that we read. Um, Hills like white elephants and um, the uh, uh oh help me oh here I got them done um, that we did God I don't know a year ago any comments or You might want to get some wine because it's going to get darker and darker. It's going to get darker and darker. All I can say, if you guys have the courage to stay through this, I'm going to get some wine after I have some water. Okay, very briefly, if I can, try. Pardon my to call it shallowness of, of but I want to rec we've, we've got three extraordinary works of art here and since we're going back to Hemingway I really want everybody to recover them because they they will help fill out what we're going to see in um, in a much fuller treatment in uh, Old Man on the Sea three of his I think greatest short stories are Hills Like White Elephants um the um, short happy life of Francis McComber and God, where and a clean well lighted place um, and I apologize for the hasty treatment I'm not going to do justice to these stories but it's it's not our focus I want to go back because I th I think they're going to help fill out what Hemingway's doing and you'll just get a much clearer picture of just just what he's showing us about the modern world. In Hills Like White, and I, remember in all of this, I'm, I'm going to hold off asking you what he's doing with setting, because it's a crucial question. But I want to wait till I've just briefly gone over each of the plots and then come back to that question. What, what's he doing with setting in each one of these? Because you know the sea is the setting of Old Man and the Sea, obviously. And it's had a very different meaning for artists through the centuries. The Odyssey takes place at sea. Okay. Um, 
Dante, when he goes into the Paradiso in Paradise, describes his journey as journeying into the sea and all of us following on a ship. And he warns us about following him because he says he's going to enter dangers. Shakespeare's The Tempest. Shakespeare's Pericles at sea. Moby Dick at sea. So the sea has been a major image for so many of these great artists. Um, Hills Like White Elephants. Remember, it takes place at a railroad um, um, stopover place between two towns. Um, I can't remember, Madrid and I can't remember the other one. The couple are there waiting for a train and they're talking apparently about nothing and suddenly they get serious. Um, the girl um, makes a a dark allusion to the drink and says that so many of the drinks that they're tasting taste like absinthe or licorice. It's a bitter taste. Um, they order anise del toro, which means the seed of the bull. The seed of the bull. What we discover um, as we move through the conversation is that the girl's pregnant. And the two have been skirting the issue. They're at cross purposes. They're not coming together at all. They're at, at cross purposes. The girl's pregnant. And it's clear that, or it seems very clear, she wants to have the baby, and the man doesn't. But she want, she doesn't want to do anything to disappointment, disappoint him or upset him. He says, it's really an awful simple operation, Jig. It's not really an operation at all. The girl looked at the ground. The table rested. I know you wouldn't mind a Jig. It's really not anything. It's just to let the air in. Um, he'll say, we will be fine, just like we were before. Over and over and over again, the the... The frame of reference for them is they've been living a life of doing nothing but drinking and having fun. So their idea of, of a good life is drinking and traveling, seeing new places. Um, I'll love it. I love it now, but I just can't think about it. You know how I get when I worry. If I do, it won't. If I do it, you won't ever worry. I won't worry about it because it's perfectly simple. Then I'll do it because I don't care about me. Um, she makes a comment about the hills like white elephants, and she's just being imaginative. But what we know, I mean, as a reader and Hemingway as an artist, that white elephants in um, the Orient are um, unwanted um, because they're not useful. So anybody who has them has an unwanted burden. So indirectly, there's an allusion to the child because of the way it's going to change the couple's life. Is that clear? So even though she's making this passing comment and, and treats it as being comic, it really goes to the heart of the problem. They go on like this and saying they can have their own life and, and it's clear that they can't anymore. Um, doesn't it mean anything to you? We could get along. Of course it does, but I don't want anybody but you. I don't want anyone else. And I know it's perfectly simple. Yes, you know it's perfectly simple. It's all right for you to say that, but I know it. Would you do something for me now? I'll do anything for you. Would you please, 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 seven pleases. That's how emotionally she's distraught at this moment. Would you please stop talking? She doesn't want to hear it anymore. Um, he didn't say anything. There were labels on them for all the hotels where they'd spent nights on their bags. Um, but I don't want you to, he said. I don't care anything about it. I'll scream. It's as if he's trying to comfort 
her by saying doesn't matter what she does when clearly he's going to be unhappy if he doesn't get his way, if she doesn't have an abortion. The word pregnancy, the word abortion, never once comes into the story. What Hemingway shows us is this couple talking around something that never gets mentioned, but, you, but so you know that the, what, what Hemingway is doing is what he calls um, showing us the tip of an iceberg. He's giving us just an information to know how bad things are underneath. Um, he goes out, um, the train's coming, um, they'll finish their drinks, there's a description on the part of the narrator of the setting, and then it ends like this. Do you feel better, he asked. I feel fine, she said. There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. <laughs> I hope everybody feels the force of that irony. I mean, I hope it's clear she's not fine at all. Um, hold on to that story in the setting. The short, happy life of Francis McComber is much too long to go in here, except Francis McComber and his wife have gone to Africa for a safari and the, and the first hunt in the guy's life. She's wealthy, he's wealthy. They've been married for I don't know, 11 years, I think. And on the first day out, um, he embarrasses himself because when the moment comes for him to take a shot and the animal's charging him, the lion, he turns and runs. And the white guide shoots the lion, but the wife sees it all. And she does everything she can to keep that in front of him, to humiliate him, to make him aware of his cowardice. It's her way of keeping control over him. It's just a, it's a painful story to read. Um, she won't let it go, and the, the safari guide is aware of this. He's very manly. He's embarrassed by what the, the, the husband did, and he's even more embarrassed because of the, what the wife is doing with him. Um... I don't want to go into the, you should read it again. Honestly, you should read it. It's, it's an extraordinary story. Um, that night, when they go to sleep, the husband, Macomber, recalls the episode, so we get to relive it. And one of the interesting passages is actually presented from the lion's point of view. Now, that's really important because of what's going on in Old Man of the Sea. Because lions don't have a rational consciousness. But he's showing us the scene from the perspective of the lion just before the shooting. So the, the lion becomes almost a person in the story. And then we get um, the, the shooting and Macomber's cowardness and running. The next day, or that night, later in the evening, when he wakes up, he discovers his wife was not in bed with him. And shortly afterwards, she comes in, he asks where she was, and... I, I, I'm trusting everybody knows where this is going. She went into the um, the guide's tent and they made love. And the next morning, when it's brought up, um, it's it's uh, it, there's this um, anger and disturbance and lack of trust and it everything has turned dark. Um, the woman has no excuses. Um, her way of let me see if I can. Um, he says, where have you been? Out to get a breath of air. Oh, that's, the new, um, that's the name for it. You are a bitch. Well, you're a coward. All right, he said. What of it? Nothing as far as I'm concerned, but please let's not, tarling, let's not talk, darling, because I'm very sleepy. You think that I'll take anything. I know you will, sweet. 
Well, I don't. Please, darling, let's not talk. The use of her darling is just sticking in the knife. Um, it's the way a woman can seem to be sweet on the outside when, as a matter of fact, she's being very, very vicious. Um, well, there it is. She said she's confident that he's not going to leave her. Some part of him does not want to leave her. They've been married for a long time, but that's the strain they have. The next day they set out to, um, to hunt bulls, and Macomber recovers himself and actually shoots the lead bull. There are three of them. And the guide helps out killing the other two, even though Macomber is the one who shots, crippled them. So Macomber experiences a turn. And in, in that moment, something happens to him that takes away his fear. And the white hunter wants to go into the, or one of the guides comes back and says that one of the bulls, the first bull that was shot, the, the first one, um, got away. So they have to go into the bush to find him. The wife is watching all of this and she's getting terrified and she watched her husband show courage and um, Hemingway's description of her is she turned white. It's as if she's seen him do something courageous and she's afraid because she won't, she'll lose control over him. Because she, she, she's glad that he fails because it gives her control over him. So we're watching something vicious on her part in the way she's dealing with this. Macomber is doing what he came to do and suddenly experiences this turn. Here's the important scene. They go after the bull. They think he's dead and suddenly in the bushes out comes this bull heading right for Macomber and the guide. And the guide says, make sure you shoot, shoot at the lower at the nose because the horn is... Um, the bull deliberately places it to shield himself off. Um, this is the passage. He's dead in there, Wilson said. Good work. And he turned to grip Macomber's hand and they shook hands. The guide has become, as, as, um, has begun to um, admire him because he's seen what he calls this young, typical American male who will not grow up. He lives in his fantasy world. And these typical women who tend to use men for themselves, men and women in this world are rivals. They're com Remember, this is a commercial regime. They're now rivals to each other. So we see this rivalry play out in the, in the hunt. Um, the bull coming, nose out, mouth tight, closed, blood dripping. Wilson, who was ahead kneeling, shooting. McCumber, as he fired, unhearing his shot and the roaring of Wilson's gun, saw fragments like slate burst from the huge boss of the horns and the head jerked. He shot again at the wide nostrils and saw the horns jolt again and fragments fly. And he did not see Wilson now and aiming carefully shot again. So the bull's almost on him and he's not running. He's aware of Wilson but his, my, his focus, his concentration is on the bull. Wilson kneeling, shot again. Um, he did not see Wilson now aiming carefully shot again with the buffalo's huge bulk almost on him and his rival almost leaven with the oncoming head nose out and he could see the little wicked eyes and the head started to lower and he felt a sudden white hot blinding flash explode inside his head and that was all he ever felt. He's dead because his wife killed him and the, the way that it's presented is that she was shooting to kill the bull, but the ambiguity of the story is we're not sure that 
that part of her intention wasn't to kill her husband because she had seen her husband do something courageous and she knew that he might leave her. And her sense of, of losing control over him was slipping so that the shot may have been, or even consciously or unconsciously deliberate. Um, she starts weeping. Um, the guide tells everybody to, he covers up the body, leaves it. And then he goes to the woman. That was a pretty thing to do, he said. He would have left you too. Stop it, she said. Of course it's an accident, he said. I know that. Stop it, she said. Don't worry, he said. There will be a certain amount of unpleasantness, but I will have some photographs taken. It will be very useful at the inquest. There's the testimony of the gun bearer, the driver too. You're perfectly all right. Now, you don't know this, but earlier in the story, we learned because the wife says, it's unfair that you were in the car chasing animals. And there's actually a rule that hunters aren't supposed to do that. And the guide was violating it, so she had something against him. She could take the law. So she could control him the way she was controlling her husband. Um, stop it, she said. Of course it's an accident. He said, I know that. Stop it. Don't worry. There will be a certain amount of unpleasantness, but I will have some photographs taken that will very be useful at the inquest. There's the testimony of the gun bearer, the driver. You're perfectly all right. Stop, she said. There's a hell of a lot to be done, he said, and I'll have to send a truck off to the lake to wire uh, to wireless for a plane to take the three of us into Nairobi. Why didn't you poison him? That's what they do in England. Stop it, stop it, stop it, the woman cried. Wilson looked at her with flat blue eyes. I'm through now, he said. I was a little angry. I'd begun to like your husband. Please stop it, she said. Please stop it, stop. That's better, Wilson said. Please is much better. Now I'll stop. It's an extraordinary story, and it's, it's probably one of the most powerful stories of the way that um, women can emasculate men, that, um, that, that they can't lose control over the husband. Um, so we're, we're seeing um, both things go on, but in this particular story, we're seeing a really vicious side of a woman. Clean, well-lighted place. Two sailors are in a, two, sorry, two waiters are in a bar, one young and one old. And there's an isolated man, a lonely man, sitting by himself, and the two waiters talk. And the older waiter says something to the effect that the man tried to kill himself. And the other one asks why, and, and the answer is he's wealthy. There's no reason he would have wanted to. So the old man says it had to be from despair because he had everything he wanted. And in doing that, Hemingway is going right to the truth of something because possessions are not going to take away a person's despair. You can have all the possessions you want and still be miserable. The reading was about that this morning. Um, the, the young waiter wants to get rid of the old man and keeps pressing the old man to leave, and the old waiter says, stop it. It's important for somebody to have a clean, well-lighted place. It's different from a bar. There has to be a place somebody can go to, and a bar won't give this man what he wants. And the young waiter says he wants to get home, um, and um, he says he has a wife waiting for him in bed. Um, a wife would be no good to him now. You can't tell. He might be better with a wife. His niece looks after him. She said she cut him down. Um, being an old man is a nasty thing. So we're watching an old man age. Now this is ages before Hemingway's old age and what he does when he comes to it. Um, 
The old man is sympathetic. You talk like an old man yourself. He can buy a bottle and drink at home. It's not the same. No, it's not, agreed the waiter with the wife. <coughs> he did not want to be unjust. He was only in a hurry. And you, have you no fear of going home before your usual hour? Does everybody hear the sarcasm there? The assumption is if he comes home, there's going to be some man in his wife's bed. That's what people do. Are you trying to insult me? No, he's having fun. Finally, they close up. And the old waiter says, we are of two different kinds. The, old, the young man wants to go home and have sex because all the younger waiter cares about, cares about is money and sex. That's all. So clearly to him, his wife is somebody to use. Just wants to go home and have sex. The old man is concerned because the old, the old waiter is concerned because the old man won't have a light now. He'll go home alone. The old waiter leaves and he comes to a bar. Um, and he comes up to the bar and the barman says, what's yours? Nada. Nothing. Now just before that, as the old waiter is approaching the bar, and the man's going to say what he wants, he says, not. The old man has this running through his head. The old man or the old waiter? Sorry, the old waiter. He's thinking about the importance of a clean, well-lighted place and not a bar, and certainly not with music. Um, it's the light, of course, but it's necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. You do not want music. Certainly you do not want music. Nor can you stand before a bar with dignity while that's all that's provided for in these hours. What did he fear, this old man? It was not fear or dread. It was a nothing that he knew too well. This is the nothingness of the modern world. Now remember all the determinisms I mentioned ago. There's not an area, biology, physics, psychology, sociology, politics. Those were all the theories that set the foundation, established the scientific foundation of the modern world. It was a nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing, and a man was nothing too. Now remember, hear this against that backdrop. Man's this thing. He's evolved. He's no different from the apes. Kill him, it doesn't matter. He's no different from an animal. Now hold on to that, because it's going to be important for old man on the scene. It was all... Um, it was a nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing, and a man was nothing too. It was only that the light was all it needed, and a certain clean, cleanness and order. Some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it all was nada, y puis nada, y nada, y puis nada. Ar nada, who art nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, in nada, as it is in nada. Give us this nada, our daily nada, and nada us, our nada, as we nada, our nadas, and nada us into nada, but deliver us from nada. Pues nada, hail nothing full of nothing, nothing is with thee. He smiled and stood before a bar with a shrunken steam pressure coffee machine. Um, he disliked bars, and a um, barman asks if he wants another competing. He says, no thank you, the waiter goes. He disliked bars and bodegas. A clean, well-lighted cafe was a very different thing. Now, without thinking further, he would go home to his room. He would lie in the bed. And finally, with daylight, he would go to sleep. After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it. And before we go on, what's the irony of that last line? After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it. 
What's the irony of that last line? Does everybody hear it? Unmute them. Hmm? Unmute them. They can unmute. Anybody? No, I'm going to... Anybody wants to front? Just unmute and jump in, you guys. I've said this every evening. Just, I'm going to mute everybody because I think it may improve the sound, but... Um, um, anytime you want to jump in, don't hesitate. Okay. What's the irony of that last line? If many have it, <laughs> can it be just insomnia? It's like the girl walking out in, you know, Hills Like Wyatt Elephants. Um, when she said, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's a tip of the iceberg. When I do with that, but, um, denial. Huh? Yeah. Denial. Well, it, it's an ironic understatement. He's he, what he's doing. It's 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 really a mark of his art. Um, that he's just showing the tip of the iceberg. And I think it's it's a an amazing technique because what it does is show us a surface that seems to be okay. And nothing much seems, the girl says, I'm fine. The guy, the old waiter says, um, it's nothing. It's only insomnia, many of us have it. It's an understated irony because if so many have it, it's obviously pointing to something more. And it's a question of how many people recognize it or who are willing to see it. So the picture he's giving us here is of a very dark, modern world. It's the beginning of the modern world, the existential crisis, um, in which the sciences have really taken away the ground for any metaphysical reading of the world or any spiritual reading of it. And it's left man in this sort of devastated space. Um, let me just return to that one question, and then I want to get the old man on the seat. Um, look at the settings. What do you make of the settings? In Hills Like White Elephants, it's a, it's a railroad station between Madrid and another town. It's a Barcelona, I think, Madrid and Barcelona. In um, Macomber, um, The Short Happy Life of Francis Macomber, it's a hunt. It's a safari hunt. And in a clean, well-lighted place, it's bodega, not a bar. Not a bar. What's Hemingway doing with those settings? I think he's kind of forcing us to really think about that the, the story at the tip of the iceberg and find what the story is really all about. Like in the in the White Elephant, you see the the contrast. The the railroad station is kind of a midway point, a a, a, a crossing point where. It's clear that the the man wants to continue in the carefree lifestyle that right. they've been living. Right. But the girl, and I think it's even interesting that one's a man and one's a girl, not a man and a woman. It's a, a man and a girl, and really the girl, by virtue of comparing the 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 white elephants, the with with the fertile field, 
she she's going in a different direction. She's she's not happy with that carefree, yep. you know, you know, all about yep. drinks. She's looking for something more in life, which kind of highlights the problem with that existential society. You move to the story with um, the uh, well-lighted place. You kind of see with that with with the importance of something place being clean and and well lit. You you. It, it kind of points to that 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 lonely, helpless aspect of that existential life where you only care about the material things. You can see the clear difference between the old man, the elder waiter, and the young waiter where they're focused on very different things. The young waiter is only wants to get home and jump in bed with his wife right. and can't understand why the old man can have any problems because he's right. got money. Right, right. If you if you move on to the uh, the African, um, I, I guess what I got out of that is when they talk about his short happy life. To me, the short happy life was not the fact that he died at the age of thirty five. The short happy life was that few moments when he was standing up to the bull courageously, right. probably the first time in his life, and it only lasted for a few minutes because he got shot in the back of the head. Right. Right. Settings kind of force us to realize what Hemingway, it's, it's kind of brilliant in a way, because it kind of forces us to really dig deeper into the storyline, and by doing that, we understand really what Hemingway's trying to tell us in each one of the stories. Yeah, yeah, in a, in a, yeah it's, I think you're right on, Fred. In a, in a, in a way, it, it's as if... Wait, I want to be really clear. In every one of the stories, the setting functions as an analogy for the action of the story itself. A hunt, an in between, a, um, a place of cross purposes, you know, a meeting, a juncture, a hunt. A clean, well lighted place is an analogy of heaven. So that in every one of the stories, he's 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 setting the action in a in a setting that speaks, so we're aware that there's something outside the people involved that actually reflects that action. We, I mean, I'm not sure that metaphysical is the right word for it, but it shows that it's a part of that world, and so it, it adds a dimension to it. I, the one that I particularly like, I think, is a clean, well-lighted place, because a clean, well-lighted place in this world, once you deny God. It's heaven. The closest analogy to that is a clean. That's the only place for people to go truly, you know, for comfort. Just as you said, the young waiter wants to jump into bed. He wants to have material things. He wants to have possessions. Um, in every one of these, and in the hunt, what we see is the um, African safari is once again an image for something predatory going on in a marriage. They are rivals to each other, and the, the, the wife is particularly vicious in this story. She's the huntress, and she kills. So every one of the settings, um, the hunt shows something predatory in man, clean well out of place, the bodega, the, or the, it's a cafe, shows something comforting that points to heaven that's not there. The, the Lord's Prayer with all those nadas is taking a whole metaphysical dimension away. Um, it's a dark, dark, dark world, and um, and remember, I mean, this is sort of a leap now, but it's it's setting up for Old Man of the Sea. 
What Darwin said is that man is evolving from the animals. So according to Darwin, we belong in a process, um, an evolutionary process over which we have no control, that identifies us with animals. Um, we're just one among something evolving. Um, I want you all to read Everlasting Man. I just, I just think it's so important. So um, these people, these people have been, their minds have been formed with these modern theories. This is a very modern um, image of man. It's not unusual. I mean, somebody who's Catholic is hopefully not going to hold on to these things, but I think it's crucial for us to be aware of them. That's our world. But there's lots of people who look at the world in these terms. Now, let me go back and just strengthen this if I can for a minute. Remember, in, over the course of our time, <clears throat> I've made the point that the dominant political theory, the two, th the two theories that are most prevalent in the West, Europe and America today, is Machiavelli, the ends justify the means. You can't watch a political situation today without seeing people are expedient. You, you justify getting rid of human lives because you have to do this. Machiavelli, the end justifies the mean, is one. The other is the social contract theory from Hobbes, Rousseau, and Locke. They're the major social contract theorists. They're the ones who laid the political foundation of the modern world. Every one of them argued that man is in a state of war in nature. The natural state of war is, I mean, the natural state of nature is war. Humans will kill each other. Now, stop and think about this with Hemingway and Old Man on the Sea, or even the stories we've been reading. Man's in a state of war. He's a rival to another. We're going to kill each other because the basic in impulses behind everything we do is pride and self-preservation. The only way we can get out of that state of war is by making a contract, agreeing, I won't do this to you if you won't do this to me. So the hidden impulse behind the, the politics of the modern world are Machiavellian and social contract. It's making compromises. If your rivals get along. So going into an interior world, the Holy Spirit or anything that a Catholic would believe, it couldn't be farther from the way that a Catholic looks at the world. Um, humans are out to kill each other. They're animals. Um, remember what I said about um, Macomber? at that when he's dreaming and he's recalling what happened with the lion early in the day the lion is presented as if we're getting the picture from his point of view and in, you, you know if you've been reading um, Old Man of the Sea that um, that um, Santiago constantly identifies himself with the Marlin we are brothers we are one we are wedded we are alike we're strange you're going to do everything you can to fight me. I'm going to do everything I can to kill you. So that, that basic image informs everything he does. The question is, is there some dignity that man can attain given that view of life? It's one of the fundamentals or problems we're dealing with here with Hemingway. Is that clear? Is that clear? Any questions or comments? Well, any, 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 like sorry, wait, hold, any more comments on the, or the three stories? Sorry, Bob, go ahead. Yeah, I just, 
again, the thing that impressed me both with regard to that as well as the advantage of looking at the old man of the sea has, has something to do with decisions and decision making and responsibility that people have and who takes it. Uh, I mean, the, the, the you know the, certainly the issue at the train station is they don't want to you know it's it's a nebulous invite re, re, I guess response between the two of them with regard to well what to do who's going to do it and what will happen if it's if we do it <laughs> kind of kind of thing and it's there there's an issue there that. He's not going to take any responsibility, no matter what what she does. I mean, yeah, if 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 it's if they're going to disappear, uh, a similar thing with regard to the safari thing. I mean, uh, the issue is is that yeah, she she was a uh, made made things very difficult for for everybody there. She was in certainly trying to entrap the uh, the, the safari guy and. Uh, he he was leery of that. He he basically now feels like he's going to be in with him. So again, we're who's 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 responsible? I, you know, I I guess life to me, it, at least in my career, was always one of of who makes the decision and who takes the responsibility. And uh, I I see that pattern being expressed in in at least two of those stories quite quite easily. And of course, I think when you get we get to the the issue of the old man in the sea, but uh, uh, which which adds some clarity and makes it more individualistic, which is what we really would like to have, because we knew, really know that most of the times we're the we're the cause of the damn problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what um, one of the interesting things in in just in the historical context in in which we're seeing these stories. Um, it's interesting in all three of those stories that there's no frame of reference outside of um, animal behavior. Yeah. I mean, what you know, you. I mean, I'm, I know your you know your work in geology, and I know your faith. There was something real that you could turn to. I mean, you understood that there were realities that that you could perceive, and that you could use as a basis for making any argument or decision you make. But if you live in a world in which things are evolving. There is no frame of reference, no moral, no spiritual frame of reference any longer. To what do you to what do you appeal to make a decision? The the girl can't formulate anything. She you know she's saying, um, I don't want you ever to be disappointed. All they want, all they have is their pleasure. There's nothing else they can turn to. To to find a moral reason or a spiritual reason for what what they're doing. Same thing in the hunt. The, the back metaphor is that humans are part of an animal kingdom and in clean, well-lighted place. Nada, nada, nada. Heaven's gone. What you've got is a clean, well-lighted... It's the, it's the closest analogy... I love clean, well-lighted place because it's, to me it's, it's one of the simplest, most earthly kinds of representations metaphorically or analogically of heaven. There's no frame of references. So in this world... When people make decisions, they're in a void, a nada. They can identify with an animal or world around them. They can, they have a sense of nothingness. But in, but in some ways, they're lost. It's a, it's a different world from the world that we live in. So, 
And Hemingway, I mean, this goes to the point that I wanted to make earlier. When you, when you read these stories and you think about his popularity back then, and then he, he lost his popularity, but particularly when the agenda critics, feminists, Marxists, you know, um, sexual agendas, when they start going to work on Hemingway, it's nothing, it's nothing but negative. But it seems to me one of the things that happened when he and Faulkner were writing, it goes to one of these claims that I've been making you know, to you guys forever, that they are prophetic. To, um, I'd, I'd like everybody to think seriously about this. Um, when we read, when we hear the readings daily or through the year and the weekends, we become aware that so many of the Hebrew prophets got pushed to the margins. A, a voice in the desert. Nobody listens. Uh, they abandon God. They keep trying to call a people back to God, and the people don't listen. Because very often they were telling them things about themselves they didn't want to hear. They wanted their pleasure, they wanted their money, they wanted their sex, their possessions. And Yahweh's saying, and I, that's why, I, I mean, I hope everybody heard the reading this morning because it's a dark, dark reading. Don't cry, put on your sandals, don't, you know, get ready for exile. He's going to destroy everything. Um, God. Um, these artists are like prophets, except the, for me, what what's weighs so heavily on my own heart about these old people, they're prophetic figures, they're, they're doing, they're showing us things about ourselves that most of us don't want to see, but there's no God. There's no, they can't stand on his shoulders. They're living in a margins in such isolation that the suicide rate among artists is through the roof. I mean, they live horribly. Who's going to pay attention? They either become really popular and drugged, you know, doped out on drugs. Um, some survive. Lots kill themselves. It's just a lonely, lonely life. So Hemingway and Faulkner, it seems, New York, two of the great prophets of um, our modern world. They're showing us things about America, the wanting to win, to get ahead, um, to outdo a rival, um, to to do things for the wrong motives, because there's nothing else in this world. So he opened up a dark world and um, became one of the great writers of the 20th century, um, along with Faulkner. And both of them, you know, um, received the Nobel Prize for literature. Um, um, if there's no more comments or questions on uh, the short stories, we can turn to Old Man on the Sea for the next. Are you time. anything? Is there anything I, I got out of the well-lighted place? And you know, part of the was it put me in the context of of being in uh, in Taiwan, a Taiwanese bar on Christmas Eve, and uh, <laughs> we're with them. With them playing <laughs> Ave Maria, they seem to have the same kind of analogy. With what? <laughs> funny, funny, yeah. That <laughs> I should, I should write, I should write those. That as a short story, I guess. Robert, I, I, you know, I've said this to you before. I think you've probably got fifty short stories in there that you, and twenty-five of which should have been written already. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Um, listen, just along those same lines, I don't. You guys remember the movie Departure that we watched together? Yes. Remember the 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 um, 
what was it? What, where China or North South Korea? Remember the young man who played the cello, who lost yeah. his job and had to come home and and had to deal with that face saving problem, and he became an undertaker, the assistant of an undertaker, and he had to right. prepare the people. If you remember, in the middle of the movie, when they're playing songs, they're playing Ave Maria. Right. I it was Christ, It was Christmas, I think. I that. <laughs> and it was Ave Maria. It was a was a um, anyway. Okay, um, give me 30 seconds, and I'll be right back, and we'll start. I was going to get it. You sit. I'll get it, Doc. Wait, could you? No, would you pee? No, here. Would you? No. Suzanne, come back here. So, I want my wife to say hello. That's how much she listens to me. No, come back here. I want, I want her to. I, yes, keep it up, Jolie. Every class we started, she's. I brought her in to say hello because, I, I, you guys know how fond she is of you and. Um, Apparently, she's not fond enough to come say hello. <laughs> well, she only had a birthday here recently, so maybe she's Fred, running around birthdays. I, I want to see how much courage you have to say that when she comes back. You, you and my wife here. Hold on. Talk about rivalries. Talk about the jungle. What? Here, would you sit down and just say hello to everybody for a minute? Yeah, well, ask him what he just said. Ask Fred what he just said. What'd you just say, Fred? There she is. <laughs> Where you been? Oh, you big coward. <laughs> Answer the question. <laughs> he said it was your birthday, so, so you I, had to... Suzanne, I know I can ask you this question, and I'll get a good answer. Okay. We've, we've seen the real dark side of Hemingway with the three short stories. Yeah. I see a completely different Hemingway in The Old Man and the Sea. What do you think? I haven't finished reading it this time around. Um, but I basically trust Robert. I think he, if he sees a darkness in it, it's probably there. It's certainly there in the stories. So well, we haven't gotten there yet. So I was just curious what you thought about the old man in the sea versus the short stories. Yeah, I haven't finished it, so I'll tell you next week. All right, I'm gonna hold her. I'm gonna hold her to that too. <laughs> Suzanne's going to start the class next week. No, she's not. <laughs> Suzanne, Suzanne, Suzanne. What? Suzanne. Yes. Suzanne. Yes. Hi, Debbie. I. I whoa. No. What? No. You. You trust Robert? I oh, do not. People have an opinion. Wait. How do, how do I mute some of these people? How do I mute some of these people? I trust him as I trust him as a literary critic. Oh, stop! Did you learn anything from Happy Short Life? Boy, it's clear I shouldn't have read those. You guys are getting really dark right now. No. Okay. Don't go hunt. Don't go hunting with Dick Cheney. Okay. You guys, you guys can all stop right now. God, boy, talk about a dark side. Hmm? So, I'm interested to see what you think, Bob, because to me, I see a different. What? 
Well, which which okay. right part? So I see a, a, a totally different viewpoint in The Old Man and the Sea versus the short stories. Let's wait. Wait. Let's wait. I want to hear, but let's wait. Linda, Tom, yeah. wow. Good morning. God, good, good to see you. Oh, boy, really good to see you guys. Yeah, Have you guys been here all this time? I saw your name earlier, but I didn't see a picture. Boy, does my, does my heart good to see the two of you. Tom, how are you doing? Thank you. Good, good, good. Tom, are you doing all right? Yeah. yeah, I was not feeling, I was feeling badly for a while, but I think I'm, I'm turning the corner. Turn it, it's good, it's good. Gone. Um, would everybody keep Tom, let's keep Tom in our prayers, because he's been struggling with medical issues. Um, I hope you're okay with that, Tom. Yeah. Thank you, yes, I appreciate that. It's, I, I cannot tell you how good it is to see you, and I mean that sincerely. A glass of red wine would help him. <laughs> All you have to do is drive over to our house. <laughs> I know where to go. We may surprise you. Okay, let's let's start. Let's start. Let's start. Um. What's the I've talked about one of the techniques in Hemingway that you should be aware of. Hemingway called it, I, I don't know that he called it the tip of the iceberg, but that's what critics have named it. He said that he only shows seven-eighths of what's there. Um, he, he, he gives a surface, so it's very bare and spare. I, I think it's very austere, very austere. Um, his writing, to me, it's the writing of a perfectionist. He... he and I'm saying that nervously because it seems to me that that's something he had to have carried over in his life. Um, and I'm not sure that all the effects of it were good, but I, I, I just think the the works of art that he created are extraordinary. We, we just happened to pass over three of them very quickly, and, and The Old Man of the Sea um, may be in some ways his best. Um, but remember that technique, the tip of the iceberg. The other thing that I want to call attention to is that, that um, in most of the stories that we read, and certainly in Old Man of the Sea, you, you remember from all the work that we've done in narrative how important the narrative point of view is. Because sometimes, remember the women writers that we read? Flannery O'Connor, um, Catherine Ann Porter, Eudora Welty. Um, um, in, in a couple of um, Eudora Welty's, like um, Why I Live at the Post Office and Petrified Man, they were showing stories of these really mean women. Um, but in Petrified, or in um, Why I Live at the Post Office, um, we're presented with a story from a woman who, who tells this story, but she does it in a way to make everybody else at fault. And it's really clear as you read through the story that she's the one who's at fault and she can't see it. She's just in complete denial. So she's an unreliable narrator. We, we know as we get her story, and she's blaming everybody, she's criticizing everybody in her life, that she's the one who's making problems and she's too selfish to see it. So the narrative point of view is not a small thing. In so many of um, Hemingway's stories, particularly the ones we read tonight, and Old Man of the Sea, 
we're getting the story from a narrator, but we can't name him. It's not a person. It's nat it belongs in the naturalistic tradition, you know, that I've been describing this according to the uh, the object of truthfulness of scientific facts, that things are a certain way, they're all determined, that Hemingway's stories are presented objectively. They're almost like dramas. You're not aware of a person. It's as if facts are being presented by, no, with, by nobody. They're just there. So his stories take on a bare objectivity. There's no person mediating. If you read Faulkner, those of you who've done the Faulkner, you know, we... It was almost impossible to read a Faulkner story and not see it through a narrator. Because it's always a person relating to somebody else. This is not a small thing. In Hemingway's world, the people are almost always alone. They're, they're isolated figures. Even in marriages, like Macomber's story, you, you can't say that they come together, Macomber and his wife, or the girl and man in um, Hills Like White Elephants. So he tends to present things as if they're just objectively that way. Okay, that's a quality of the narrative. The great themes, I think, of, of um, Old Man of the Sea and the stories we've been reading is the, I'm going to name four of them. And, and I will add some as we go on. The nothingness of life is one of the principal things of Eliot. Not Eliot. I mean, sorry, sorry, thanks, Doc. In a Hemingway. Um, life is a war. It's a battle. Human beings fight each other. They're rivals to each other. That's the direct product of the so, um, social contract theory. Life is a war. Underneath the compromises that we make with each other is a fall. In that way, Hemingway is faithful to the biblical condition, even though he's not trying to be. Men and women are rivals. Women, men can use women. Women can viciously manipulate men. They're rivals to each other. Um, when woman becomes a rival, <laughs> I mean, often she becomes worse than men. Um, all people are at war. Marriage is a rivalry. Um, the, the, the principle in the Catholic Church is we enter into a sacrament. It's not a Protestant world. It, it's sacramental. We're not in our heads arguing ideas. It's sacramental in the sense that when you learn to give yourself to another human being, you join Christ in some way. You indwell with each other. That, that means risking entering the inner life of another person. It means serving, giving yourself. That's not what we find in Hemingway. In the Hemingway marriages, the, the, the marriages are rivalries. Um, they're rivals to each They have to outdo each other. So they never answer their pride. They never get past their pride. So the masculine-feminine tension that's been a part of so many of our stories isn't, is not answered. Um, Hemingway's answer to this is what he called a moment of grace. It's generally when a man faces a problem with courage um, and doesn't allow that problem to overcome him. So he saves his dignity. That's his typical answer. Um, I want everybody to hold on to that because that, that is 
behind the Hemingway man, the male. Um, and I don't want to say anything about it now because I want to get through Little Man on the Sea. But I'd like everybody to hold on to that because that's one of the major questions I want to I want to come back to. What do we make of that Hemingway ideal? You know that in Old Man of the Sea, Santiago keeps saying, I've had to prove myself again and again and again and again, and he still has to prove himself with this Marlin hunt. Even though he's done it a hundred times or a thousand times, he still has to prove himself as a man again. How do we look at the ending of that story when we get to it? Um, the, the need of the American male to win, to succeed. Um, in the way that Hemingway presents it, it's like, the, it's like a dignity. It's not a grace, although that's the word he used. It's a grace under fire. That's the way Hemingway looks at it. It's to, it's to be able to do something really well um, in dealing with difficulties. What do we make of that? Um, I'd like to just, I, we're not going to have much time, but I want to try to get through some of the, I'd like to try to cover half of the story today. If we don't get to it, we'll do half next week or maybe the whole, t I, I don't know how it's going to. Um, there are two major characters, Santiago and Manolin. There are others, the, the man who has the village that I don't think we see, and, and Martin who owns the cafe in town. It takes place in Cuba in the fall, in September. Um... Critics tend to divide this story into five days. It takes place in five days. Um, I'm, I'm wary of using that um, structure because days are chronological. They don't always mean anything. I think it's truer to see the action in terms of parts that are significant. Um, although they roughly correspond to the five days, they're a little bit different. So. You know my tendency that following Aristotle that it's important to see the action or the plot in terms of an action. And I would say there are there are four distinct parts to the action of Old Man in the Sea. The first is the preparation to leave. This is the scene in which he's um, preparing, and it's important to point out this theme right now. It's impossible to read this story without seeing how important that kid is for Santiago. The whole opening section has to do with the, um, his tutoring the boy, his helping to prepare the boy to enter that life. Remember the way the boy sets himself against his parents. The parents don't trust the old man. His father won't let him help. Santiago does everything he can to ask the boy to help. He makes him carry things. He asks him to do things. When, when, um, when they set off, the, the boy wants to do everything he can for the old man. He's such a good kid. He's so considerate. He's so thoughtful. I mean, it's just hard not to like him. He, he loves the old man. He wants, in fact, he's sad because his parents don't want him to be with him. The old man is doing everything he can to, um, what's the word, in, induct him, initiate him into this way of life. Because this way of life is different from the conventional fisherman. He does things in a special way. He's going to go out to sea in a special way. Um, so the first act, the first sequence, the first part of the action is the preparation. The second is that he catches the marlin. At noon in that second day, he actually snags the marlin. So he actually snags him early on. The next couple of days are going to deal with the fight 
between this marlin and San Diego. So the second part is the snagging the fish, catching him, and, and the struggle that follows from that. The third section, I'd say, is the shark attack. You know that after he brings the marlin, fixes him, attaches him to the boat, that the sharks start attacking. And we're watching a whole underworld viciously go at it. It's been implied in the short stories. We saw it in Mrs. McComber, the shooter and husband. It's implied in, it's implied in um, Hills Like White Elephants. Um, it doesn't become explicit there. but So the first one's a preparation. The second is snagging him. The third is the shark attack. And the fourth is the homecoming. The Nostos, remember from the Odyssey, coming home. Um, let me see if I can just fill this plot out a little bit because I, I want to try to help everybody get a sense of the whole so that we can begin to look at parts a little bit more closely. Um, let me... Um, Am I muting you all? Um, if you, God, I don't, um, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that, um, I, I doubt that we're all going to have the same addition, but let me try to do as best I can. Um, in the opening words, it begins, he was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the Gulf Stream. He'd gone 84 days now without taking a fish. In the first 40 days, a boy had been with him. But after 40 days without a fish, the boy's parents had told him that the old man was now definitely and finally salau, which is the worst form of unlucky. Because of that, the parents don't want the boy to have anything to do with the old man. And the young boy describes the parents, the, particularly, I guess, the father, in terms of not having faith. That, so that, that is their concern is more with success. And... Because of that, they discouraged the boy from being with the old man. Um, the next page, everything about him was old except his eyes, and they were the same color as the sea, and were cheerful and undefeated. Um, down a few lines. It was Papa made me leave. I'm a boy, and I must obey him. I know the old man said it's quite normal. He hasn't much faith. But we have, haven't we, says the old man. Yes, the boy said, can I offer you beer on the terrace and then we'll take the stuff home. Why not, the old man said, between fishermen. That's a wonderful line because Santiago calls the boy grown up. And here his way of trying to confirm him to say is that we're fishermen. We're, we're the ones who know. You know. We know what we're doing. When he comes to wake up the boy um, to set out the next day, he comes to wake him up. Um, sorry. Um, wow. I had a... Sorry, where's the... This is on page 23, so it's roughly 20, 20 pages into the... Um, they're talking about baseball because Santiago loves baseball because 
baseball is a sport in which figures stand out for their abilities, and he particularly loves Joe DiMaggio because we learned that Joe DiMaggio had a bone spur and had to come back from an injury. He had to play in pain. He, he didn't let the suffering stop him. Um, this is on 23 on my page. Um, and the best fisherman is you. No, I know others better. Cueva, the boy said. There are many good fishermen and some great ones, but there's only you. Thank you. You make me happy. I hope no fish will come along so great that it would prove me wrong. Now, you know that that night, the old man dreams of lions. And then when um, he goes to get the boy the next morning, he wakes him up, goes into the house. Um, he was sleeping. The old man put his arm around his shoulders and said, I'm sorry. Quiva, don't be. What for? The boy said, it's what a man must do. <clears throat> On a few lines beyond, very well, Mandolin, the old man said, I feel confident today. So do I, the boy said. I must get your sardines and mine and your fresh baits. He brings our gear himself. He never wants anyone to carry anything. We're different, the old man said. I let you carry things when you were five years old. So he's taught the boy to serve, um, to enter into a spirit of doing things that involves others because his own father won't let him do anything. He wants to do everything himself. It's like his pride is on himself. He's going to do it all himself. Um, even though there's this great pride in the old man, he wants the boy to help him. Um, so in the first day, we've got the preparation. Um, when In the second day, when he's... Um, when he's out to sea, on my page 49, I'm going to read this and I hope we can manage. It's not going to... Um, he hooks the marlin and at sunset um, of that first night, this is my page 48, so 45, 50, somewhere in there. Then he said aloud, I wish I had the boy to help me to see this. Um, go down below. They are good, he said. They play and make jokes and love one another. They are our brothers like the flying fish. So he's looking around at the um, porpoises and the other fish, and he can he can he looks at them as brothers, and um, thinks of them that way, and then he begins to pity the fish that he's got, and then he says, and this is I think one of the major um, episodes in this second section. Remember, we're on the second day. Um, he says, then he began to pity the great fish that he had hooked. He's wonderful and strange and who knows how old he is. It's like, it's like a description of himself. Never I had such a strong fish nor one who acted so strangely. That word strange has been used multiple times in the book and it seems to me it's one of the most perfect because it's exactly the word that everybody would use to describe the man. They don't fit the ordinary categories of people. So we are outside the ordinary ways in which people see other things. Perhaps he's too wise to jump. He could ruin me by jumping, but perhaps he's been hooked many times, so maybe he knows better. He cannot know that it's only one man against him, nor that it's an old man, but what a great fish he is, and what, what will he bring in the market if his flesh is good? He took the bait like a male, and he pulls like a male, and he has the fight, no panic in it. I wonder if he has any plans, or if he just as desperate as I am. And now he remembers the time when um, they caught a 
they hooked one of a pair of marlins. And he describes the event. He said that the male always lets the female eat first. I mean, you can interpret that two ways. You can say he's cowardly. I don't think that's the way to read it. I think in the way that he describes it, it's the male giving way to the female, letting her eat first. But then he goes on, this is the pa- this is the passage that begins, he remembered the time he'd hooked one of a pair of marlins. The male field always let the female fish feed first, and the hook and the hook fish the female at a wild panic. So that's the practice of the uh, marlins for the male to let the female, but in this instance the female got hooked. And so a chase pers- um, followed. Then while the old man was clearing the lines and preparing the harpoon, the male fish jumped high into the air beside the boat to see where the female was and then went down deep. His lavender wings that were his pectoral pectoral fins spread wide and all his wide lavender stripes showing. He was beautiful, the old man remembered, and he had stayed. So the male marlin stayed, and when the woman was hooked, it jumped into the air. I, I think we're meant to feel... This is, this is almost like a valedictory farewell. You know, it's, it's an expression showing the male is aware of um, what's happening. That was the saddest thing I ever saw with them, the old man thought. The boy was sad too, and we begged her pardon and butchered her promptly. Um, a telling passage, and I'm going to stop with this, just a few passages down below. His choice had been to stay in the deep, dark water, far out beyond all snares and traps and treacheries. My choice was to go there to find him beyond all people, beyond all people in the world. Now we are joined together and have been since noon, and no one to help either one of us. So at this point in the second day, he snagged the fish. Um, Hemingway has used a number of metaphors. Um, The... Um, he and the marlin are wedded. They're together. He looks at the fish as his brother. They are united. Um, he's, he recalls this episode of, of harpoon or catching the female in a pair and the sadness he and the boy felt at watching what happened. And they've gone out beyond where other people go. So we're entering a kind of liminal space. It's beyond boundaries. What's going to take place here is is going to take us out into something ordinarily people don't see. It's a little bit like Ishmael. If you go back to Moby Dick, remember we, um, op- the opening of Moby Dick deals with the Protestant world on, li- on land and, and its decline. When they go to sea, it's to discover those things that are the metaphysical realities that are underneath everything. Um, Hemingway's not a music, not he's, he's just not a metaphysical thinker like Melville, but we're going out um, into an existential kind of situation. He and the Marlin are going to display some struggle that's peculiar to man and nature. That's where we're going. The only question I want to leave you with right now, because I want to stop right now, I'm going to I'm trying to hold myself to time. Um, Hemingway calls the Marlin my brother. He will say that of a number of other animals, too. At one point, he's going to look up at the moon and the sun and say, um, 
it's a wonder we don't kill the moon and the sun too and he and he says that knowing that if they did it would be a terrible thing to destroy the sun and them because we live by the sun um, but he but he looks at the whole universe in those terms that all things are rivals that there's this existential fight between things um, I'm going to leave this. I don't want an answer, but I'd like you to think about it. We know, this is, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to get too philosophic here. We know that when Francis made his conversion after he came back as a soldier and he was wounded, there's that moment when he's in church, <clears throat> he's at Mass and he sees Christ, and he says, enough, enough. And he turns, he, um, his father's wealthy. He gives up all his wealth, takes off his clothes, nude, walks out of town. His father's humiliated. He's a man given to wealth and success. Here's his son turning his back. He's, he's the son he wanted to inherit and carry on the, you know, the, the business. And you know that from that point forward, he looks at everything on the earth as his brother and sister. Brother, son, sister, moon, everything there's an intimacy between him and everything in the world. Flowers, plants, animals. The, the, wor the world congregated. And you know that in Dante, because remember the two central figures that Dante uses to explore the Franciscans and Dominicans are St. Francis and um, Dominus. St. Francis is described as giving his life to poverty. He married this woman. The woman is poverty. He embraced poverty. He experienced the stigmata. He loved everything. He gave up everything to be one with things. Okay? The great controversy of the Middle Ages was between nominalism and universalism. Nominalism is the philosophy that there's only, there's only particular things. This fish, this fish, this man, this tree, this flower. The universalists argued because they were protecting the church because they knew that um, nominalism was a threat against the church. They were arguing that universals do exist, that God and the Trinity are real at a metaphysical remove. So the ultimate origins are metaphysical, universal. God's limitless. A nominalist world says you can cut down any tree because a tree is just a tree. You can do with it whatever you want. You can throw away a baby. Let's let's make it even more. You can throw away a baby. Baby's not a baby. Get rid of it. In an anomalistic world, there are only in universals. There's no. No, there's only. There's no. There, there's only particulars. There's no universals. In the Christian Church, Catholic Church, there are universals. There's a Trinity. And it's on that basis that we say you you can't just carelessly cut down trees. If you're going to cut down trees, have a reason for doing it but not just indiscriminately. It's one of the great conflicts in America. If you've read the um, Cooper, James Finner, you know Hawkeye, the great warrior, and you know the, the settlers come in and they start tearing down trees like they're nothing. Hawkeye belongs with the Indians. He, he doesn't want to see that kind of ravage go on, that humans should be more protective of nature. Um, in Faulkner, remember in uh, Go Down Moses, Young Ike was educated by Sam Fathers, an Indian, who taught him there was this great presence to things, that he had to respect things. He couldn't just go tear, make, tear down woods and make clearings for 
business and so um, so St. Francis is famous for saying brother son sister moon for loving God's creation or do we look at Santiago that way when he says these are my brothers um, or is it different I want to stop there hold on to that question um, we'll if we don't get we don't do the whole book next week we'll get through two-thirds of it have, have all you guys finished reading it's a pretty short book have you all have you all finished how are you guys Hi. finding it before we leave Debbie how are you finding it? you're shaking your head how are you finding it this has long been one of my favorite books to read it's what it's, it has long been one of my favorite books to read. I read it probably 40 years ago. Wow. A long, long time ago. Why is it and favorite? <laughs> wow. Probably because it just speaks to me. Uh, part of, you know, I've said to Suzanne, one of the things that really is important is important to me and has always been is that I have this connection to um, things of nature and I have since a very very young child yeah. and so this book that's what that's about and it's about how everything that we see everything that we do is a, is connected to God through nature and that for me, that's that's how it how it connects, and and I guess that that's the thing that that has been most resonant for me with this book. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody want to make a brief comment on my question about Saint Francis and San Diego? Are they the same? Or are they different? You, Jolie, don't. Come on, you don't raise. Just jump in. Okay. Um, the I wondered what his uh, what's the significance of Santiago's name? Because I uh, Santiago I think means James. Saint and James. I just wondered, yeah. you know, are there things in James that we should be reading? Like the tongue is the rudder of the ship, you know, <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. I wow. Mean, and I didn't know if you yeah. know if that was a, a a also a connection to Saint Francis. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that I have, I mean, I, yes, you're right. I mean, Saint, it, it means St. James. And it's interesting to me that that's one of the Bibles that the Protestant world wasn't too fond of. But I, I mean, I, I, I want to be careful here because it, it, I want to be really careful where we go here. But yes, it does mean that. So um, anybody else before we leave? Gita, are you there? I don't know. I'm here, Bob. I'm listening. Have, have you read it? Have... No, I haven't. Um, it's a good book to read, and it's very short. It's very short. Barbara, you have any thoughts? You said you finished it. How, how did you find it? Um, I just really like Santiago. He's a delight. <laughs> Why? Because you know what he's thinking, and because he treats 
everything on a personal level. He's not out there somewhere. He's He has a relationship with the boy. He has a relationship with the fish. He even has a relationship with the sharks when the sharks start eating the, his <laughs> possession. He starts out on a quest and he fights to get it and then he starts losing it and after all is said and done, he looks at it and says, oops, I've got to start fixing myself and he's ready for the next adventure. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's simplistic. No, it's not. No, no, no. Those are good words, Barbara. Really good I words. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, good. Jenny, Jenny, do you? What's your, come on, you're scratching your head, so let's have the truth here. I, I like the, the book very much. I read it many, many years ago, and um, I enjoy, really enjoyed reading it again, and I like Santiago, too. Uh, he seems like a wise and kindly man. And I really like how he treated the boy. Yeah, yeah. Linda. It's good to see you. Any thoughts before we go? Hmm. No, I loved it years ago. So getting into it again now and see how different it will be. But I like the old man. I think all of us, most of us can identify because we're all at that age. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I, I'm assuming all of us have, have suffered. Nikki, have you been here all along? God. Nikki, what's your response? Well, you're too I, young. You're too young to identify with the rest of us here. I, you know, I'm only about a third of the way through, but I like the relationship between Santiago and the boy because I think that um, it makes me think of John's father and Jack, the grandfather and the grandson relationship that we have in the family. Oh. Yeah. I like it. Wow. 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 Have you been I didn't see you until just now. You've been present all this time? Yes. I didn't see you. <laughs> I well your picture just came on, so I just it's good to see you. Really good to see you. Okay. Um well we have two thirds of the novel to get through. <clears throat> Short novel. All of you read it. It's really a good book. It's very, very modern. Very modern. I'm going to be, it sounds to me like you guys are much nicer than I am because I'm going to have hard things to say next week. But let's wait to see what happens. Anyway, it is, it is, such, it is so good. So good to see all of you. So good to see all of you. Um, all of you keep, would you all keep all of us in your prayers so that we're praying for each other, please? Um, keep Suzanne and me in your prayers, please. Uh, we appreciate it. You guys have a good week, and all of you stay safe. Let this virus stay off of you guys. It's our constant prayer. Um, stay safe. See you guys next week. Good night. Good night. I got it, Doc. I got it. It's right here.